0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The last few elections have not been kind to the state's Republican Party, but its new chairman says he's ready to put in the work to reverse that trend. Then, the tributes keep rolling in for pioneering Congresswoman Pat Schroeder, who died this week. Today, a CU regent reflects on how she served as an inspiration. And later, there are thousands of Irish miners buried in unmarked, sunken graves in a Leadville cemetery.
1: You could be walking along and look down and say, oh my goodness, I might be standing on a grave. Hmm. So this is a way to give voice to the voiceless and give names to the nameless.
0: We'll update you on a memorial aimed at ensuring their immigration story is preserved on the eve of St. Patrick's Day.
2: As a member, you play a powerful role. That's because the stories, voices, and music you hear on CPR all begin with your support. Make a difference for your neighbors and your fellow Coloradans with your gift now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR
0: News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The last few elections have not been kind, to say the least, to the state's Republican Party. So it's safe to say that its new chair really has his job cut out for him if he wants to reverse that trend. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Birkeland joins me now to talk about that. Hi Benta. Hi Chandra. Benta, Republican party officials met last week to pick a new chair and
3: they selected Dave Williams for the job. What should we know about him? Well, Williams is a former state lawmaker and he lives in Colorado Springs. He served six years in the state house. One key thing to note about Williams is that his ideology comes from the most conservative part of the Republican Party. He spearheaded an effort to audit the state's election equipment after the 2020 election. He ran a lot of anti-abortion bills at the Capitol and in general has pushed the party to take more confrontational and strong stands on a lot of social issues. And then just to give you a sense of where he falls politically, Williams unsuccessfully primaried Congressman Doug Lamborn. El Paso County last year, running to his right. And Congressman Lamborn is a very conservative lawmaker. And during that race, Williams tried to use a political anti Biden slogan, Let's Go Brandon, to appear as his nickname on the primary election ballot. But a judge rejected that.
0: Hmm. What did he say he wants to do as party chair? Like,
3: what was his pitch to get the job? Well, you mentioned this, but a little more context here that Republicans are coming off of several cycles of deep election losses. They have fewer members in the Colorado legislature than at any time in state history. Mm -hmm. And Democrats now hold every statewide office. And the last time Republicans won statewide office was in 2014. So and registration is lagging. Members of the Republican Party are really looking now for ways to reverse course, turn things around, begin to start making gains. So Williams pitched going on offense and releasing what he said will be the full potential of conservative grassroots. And he said he doesn't think the problem is with the GOP brand or Republican policies. He blamed what he referred to as the fake news media, failed consultants, quote, crooked politicians, and he thinks too many Republicans apologize to Democrats for what the party believes and for core conservative values. And how he phrased it was that he would be a wartime leader.
0: Did he say anything concrete about
3: what he wants to do as party chair? one big thing he ran on is closing primaries to unaffiliated voters. So in 2016, Colorado voters approved allowing those who are unaffiliated to participate in the primary process. And Williams thinks only Republicans should choose their party's nominees and that opening it to to more people can lead to meddling Mm. so he blames unaffiliated voters for selecting more moderate candidates this year like US Senate candidate Joe O'Day and Pamela Anderson she ran for Secretary of State both of those Republican candidates went on to lose I would say, though, that Republicans are divided on his approach to primaries. I talked to Dusty Johnson on Saturday at this meeting, and she's the GOP party chair in Morgan County. That's on the eastern plains. She said she likes that unaffiliated voters can participate in these Republican primaries. She said she wants to include people who may be conservative, but just not an official party member. We don't want to be closed doors. We want transparency. I like the open ballot because, you know, we have independents who don't know, but they can be very much Republican at heart. And those are the issue voters, not the party voters. So I want to include them.
0: Wow. It feels like at moments like this, a party must decide whether to go more moderate and hope to win back voters who've left or to double down on their core supporters.
3: Is it fair to say that in this case, the Colorado Republicans are choosing to double down? That's certainly what the selection of Williams points to. He did only get 55% of the votes from a pretty small group of party officials who made this selection, which indicates that, you know, a lot of people will not, may not agree with this, and some of those folks are conservative activists. Mm. There is a bigger division in the party because unaffiliated voters are the biggest voting bloc in Colorado. So plenty of people like Dusty Johnson think the Republicans do need to do more to reach out to these voters. And I heard from a fair number of Republican sources after Williams got this job that They were disappointed and they're worried for the party's future one of them actually texted me an emoji of a head exploding (laughs) whoa that's a pretty strong reaction well to be honest williams is a controversial pick for one thing he's been involved in some pretty nasty party infighting in el paso county his home county and in recent years and with other members at the state house One state senator I talked to, Larry Liston, a Republican from Colorado Springs, said with Williams running the party, he's just not going to donate or work on its behalf. And after Williams' election, a few prominent Republicans publicly announced that they were going to switch their party affiliation to unaffiliated. So, Benta, where does the party go from here? I don't think anyone really knows for sure. Williams at the helm could have a big impact on how much help the party can give to Republican candidates next year in terms of money, in terms of organizing, Mm. and also which candidates the party is interested in helping. Because Williams has definitely accused some Republicans of being feckless and not staunch enough. So we have to wonder whether he'll get behind those candidates, even if they end up on the ballot, which is typically what a party chair always does. Mm. One thing I'll be looking for is if other groups spring up to represent more moderate Republicans and to take denotions from people like Larry Liston, who are distancing themselves from the party. So I think all of this will have a big impact on state house races. And remember, in 2024, Colorado is going to have two very competitive, hard fought congressional races in the third CD and the eighth CD. One final thing to note on this, though, is that the Republican Party meeting where Williams was selected, I talked to quite a few people, and a lot of them pretty much all were united that they want the party to come together. And Bob Moraine is from Fort Collins. He didn't tell me who he backed for chair, but he did say he wants Republicans to do a better job of working with the media, trying to persuade voters, and he hopes the party will treat all voters respectfully.
4: I want somebody who wants to govern well for everybody. We believe in liberty. We believe in freedom of thought. We've got to love people who think differently.
0: Now, we've been talking about the Republicans this whole time, but what's happening with leadership in the Democratic Party?
3: Yes, well, Democrats are also about to choose a new state party chair. That meeting is scheduled a little later in April. But the stakes are vastly different because Democrats have been winning and there isn't this deep division about what the party should be doing moving forward. And, you know, that said, we will be watching to see who Democrats select, what they say they want to do. And right now there are several candidates vying to be the next chair.
0: Benta, thank you. Thanks. That was CPR public affairs reporter Benta Birkeland talking about new leadership for the state's Democratic and Republican parties. (laughs) We continue to remember Pat Schroeder, the first woman elected to Congress in Colorado. She served 12 terms in the U.S. House. Schroeder died Monday at the age of 82. Her legacy lives on in those she inspired, like Wanda James. The CU region and local business owner remembers Schroeder as being a steady hand through her own political career. She just always
2: reminded Reminded me that, A, there was a reason that I was in the room, <laughs> um, that you're doing a better job than you think that you're doing, and, you know, you just keep pushing forward. She was such a beacon for women, I suppose, you know, because it's just, uh, I don't know. I, You know what? She's just a damn good friend, gave hell of advice, and was always there for a good laugh. I mean, she was just incredible when it came to what leadership meant.
0: James bandaged Jared Polis's campaign for Congress and was appointed to a national finance committee by former President Barack Obama. She and her husband were also the first black Americans to own a cannabis dis- dispensary. James now sits on the Board of Regents for the University of Colorado. She told Colorado Matters she'll also remember Schroeder for her sense of humor.
2: I think that we've just lost a, a phenomenal leader today, you know, um, and we're we're closing a phenomenal era of of powerful leaders who happened to be women that were the first of their kind. And that in itself is really powerful because if you're talking to any of the women who are in the legislature right now or women who are running campaigns or, or women who are making their power known, it was because of Pat here in Colorado. She definitely knocked down all of those doors for us. So just an amazing human being, and I can't keep saying it enough, but that laugh. I mean, she made it all seem okay when it sometimes wasn't. <laughs>
0: see Regent Wanda James remembering Pat Schroeder, the first woman from Colorado elected to Congress. When we come back on this St. Patrick's Day Eve, a memorial honoring Irish silver miners buried in the town of Leadville. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
5: Many of Colorado's biggest challenges stem from climate change, the quality and the quantity of our water, air pollution and wildfires, extreme weather. Stay informed about one of the most serious existential issues of our time with CPR's weekly climate newsletter. Every Monday, a roundup of stories curated by CPR's climate solutions team comes to your email inbox and gives you a deeper understanding of climate issues and their solutions. Sign up for your copy now at cpr.org slash
0: Tomorrow is St. Patrick's Day, a day for many to celebrate, drink beer, and partake in some great green cuisine. But of course, the holiday is about so much more than just fun parties and parades. St. Patrick's Day observes the death of St. Patrick, the patron saint of Ireland, and is also about celebrating Irish culture overall. Here in Colorado, part of honoring the legacy of the Irish community is tied to Leadville, a former silver mining town that lies near the headwaters of the Arkansas River in the heart of the Rocky Mountains. Leadville will be home to a memorial being developed to recognize the nearly 2,000 members of the Irish community buried in unmarked sunken graves in the Catholic pauper section of Evergreen Cemetery, most of whom were Irish immigrants. A central part of this memorial includes a sculpture designed by artist Terry Brennan who I'm excited to say is joining us now from Ireland. Hi, Terry.
6: Hi, Chandra.
0: And Lisa Switzer is the president of the Irish Network Colorado. Hi, Lisa. Hi, thank you so much for having us. So here's an excerpt from your website about what this memorial is really about. Quote, we memorialize the Irish community that once inhabited the east side of Leadville. The Irish occupied the bottom rung of Leadville's social ladder, worked the mines and smelters, loved, struggled, dreamed, and died young. In the early 1880s, nearly 3,000 Irish-born people lived in Leadville and surrounding gulches, scratching out a bare existence, and then moving on to Denver, Cripple Creek, Butte, and the West Coast. Twice they led massive strikes walking out of the silver mines and bringing the Colorado economy to a stop. They demanded a raise from $3 to $4 a day, an eight-hour workday, better safety codes, and the right to organize a union. So, Lisa, really, in many ways, it seems like the inspiration behind this memorial is a lot about history, DEI, which, of course, stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social justice.
1: Yes, that's very true, although I'm not sure we started out knowing that would happen, but it has become that. It really has broad appeal, immigrant appeal, to anyone who has emigrated. Most of the people who came here came from West Cork in Ireland, in Alhees, and they emigrated through central Pennsylvania and came across the Mississippi and then up to Leadville. They were uh, very poor and lived in very harsh conditions and really struck the minds a couple of times in order to try to rectify that. But in in many ways, if you look at their story, you can see the story of anyone who has struggled to make a better life for him or herself in a new country. So how did the memorial come about? Professor Jim Walsh had done his PhD work on the Irish in Leadville, and interacted with Irish Network Colorado, uh, of which I'm the president and was president at the time, and said, I have this thing that you guys need to know about. And we fell in love. And in 2018, we wrote our first grant to the Irish government, which has a very huge commitment to finding its children in the diaspora, as they call it. Mm. And we submitted a grant to the immigrant support program And we have received three over the course of the last five years because they're so intrigued and supportive of the project.
0: Now, you mentioned Jim Walsh, and he uh, joined us on Colorado Matters recently for the MLK holiday, speaking on the impact that Dr. Martin Luther King, the late civil rights leader, had on Ireland. So we are familiar with Jim, and he is an historian and researcher at the University of Colorado-Denver And this has really been a passion project for him. He has spent nearly two decades unearthing the stories of the people in those sunken graves. And he also talks about the people who made it out of Leadville and onto places like California or Montana and the history of Leadville during the silver boom of the late 1800s. So in addition to Jim, who else has been involved in this project?
1: Well, as I mentioned, Irish Network Colorado is really the driving force behind the project. We took Jim's research, and he is our project historian, so he works with us. But Irish Network Colorado has really been instrumental in getting the project off the ground. And then we have amazing supporters, such as Terry Brennan, who's on this call, who really, the project started up at a much smaller scale. But as more and more people became interested in it and heard about it, the story's been talked about in Ireland on several different social media platforms. We have supporters from the UK, from New Zealand, from Australia, and of course here in the United States. So it, it really does have a broad appeal and we're, we're super grateful for all the support we've gotten and I cannot say enough about what Terry has done for us and his generosity. But really the sculpture centerpiece, whose name is Liam, um, mm. was Terry's brainchild this has a real life component to it in so many ways.
0: There's a lot of work that's going into this memorial. Can you tell us where it stands now and kind of the vision for where it will be when completed?
1: Yes, I'd be glad to. And thank you for the question. It's gone in phases. As I mentioned earlier, we thought this would be a little three-foot sculpture someplace in the center. <laughs> it's grown to a life-size person who has his own personality in his own way, even though he's in bronze. Um, we are going to, in September, unveil the, really the final project and the larger elements. So there's a spiral walkway that leads you up to the centerpiece. We wanted people to have a real experience when they go. The cemetery is beautiful. It's quiet and a little bit eerie and melancholic. And so it's, it's lovely. And there will be an education component that's very, very important so that people all over the world can go to our website, click on a QR code, see if their people might be buried there, learn about the story, make donations. Um, And we promised the Irish government that we would use their money in a way that we could educate about their children who came here to make a better life and and often died in the process of doing that.
0: Elisa, you mentioned the sculptor, Terry Brennan. What would you say inspired your sculpture?
6: Um, it designed itself, it, it, it really wasn't that difficult. It was just, even though we came up with a few different uh, sketch options to begin with, but um, in the heel of the hunt, what we finished with was something that was just sort of culturally appropriate for where it is and what it represents.
0: What do you want people who view the sculpture to take away from it and feel? when they take in the sculpture?
6: Um, Good question. I think that uh, Irish people have a tremendous reverence generally for its culture, for Irish culture. And that's basically what the substance of it is. And that's the idea that I think it, it puts across.
0: How did you get involved in this project?
6: It was a natural thing in a way because I've been going down to West Cork for the past 40 years on an annual basis, down to the little village that Lisa referred to, Alahis, where there was a mine down there, a copper mine, and that mine closed one Sunday morning and you had 5,000 miners down there were told that there was no work for them on Monday and the mine was closing. And the reason it was closing was because the price of copper globally plummeted and the reason it plummeted was because they found easier available copper in, in the United States. So the, the irony of it is the thing that forced the closure of their mine was the thing they all gravitated towards by emigrating to America.
0: Lisa, what does the sculpture mean to you?
1: So what it means to me is as a, a person of Irish descent, whose father was a welder um, and involved in the labor movement, it is a a true way to honestly say thank you to the people whose shoulders we stand on today with our ability to have events to have education to have um, a gala which is one of our um, fundraising opportunities most of the people we're talking about would have if they were there they would have been working in the kitchen Um, And so having grown up uh, myself in in Pennsylvania and in a relatively um, poor part of Pennsylvania, very rural, this is a story that really spoke to me from the first time I heard about it. And that was long before 2018. And when we started, when we talked with Jim, I said, let's just do this. We've been talking about it for so long and there's something that must be sung that we, we have to give voice for these people who, who will be otherwise forgotten. And if you get a chance to go to the cemetery, you'll see that the graves really are sunken and unmarked. You could be walking along and look down and say, oh my goodness, I might be standing on a grave. Mm-hmm. So for me personally, this is a way to, again, give voice to the voiceless and give names to the nameless.
0: Lisa, you're president of the Irish Network Colorado. Tell us about the organization. What is it and what do you do?
1: So there are 14 chapters in the United States. We fall under the umbrella of Irish Network USA. And our purpose is to bring together, uh, as Terry said, um, Irish people and Irish Americans, we love our heritage. We love our culture. And so to bring people together who are like-minded, to celebrate that identity and to help people learn more about where they came from, more about what's really true about Irish culture beyond the green beer, as you mentioned earlier, um, about the struggles of the island. Um, Ireland has um, seen many, many struggles throughout its history. And so that's our purpose is to educate. And you don't have to be Irish. You don't have to be of Irish descent. I always say you just have to love us and you can be (laughs) part of it. So, uh, So we do a lot of networking events, a lot of educational events, a lot of partnering with other Irish uh, societies here in Denver and across the country.
0: Now, Lisa, clearly Leadville has a rich history. What fascinates you most about its history? And what do you think people who aren't familiar with the history of Leadville should know about it?
1: Well, it is, as Terry said, a little bit like um, what happened in Alleyes. It was a boom to bust kind of town. So it was very opulent when the silver, mo- when all the mines were working. And then it crashed, but during the glory days, Oscar Wilde went there, and all these famous people um, visited Leadville, and it was quite colorful. And then the, the mines busted, and people had to leave. Leadville is its own um, its own place it is still really the wild west and i love that about it <laughs> the wild wild west it truly is uh, you do business with a smile and a handshake and lots of integrity and and i love that and and it's still very um um what's the not ostentatious so as we talk about these miners and their families there's not the opulence there in Leadville, that would be something that I think would be offensive to their memories because they certainly would not have been living in houses with chandeliers. They were in tents and makeshift homes and things like that. So I like the humility of Leadville very, very much.
0: Now, of course, we've talked about the history of Leadville, but what would you say about how it exists today?
1: Honestly, um, when we talk about the immigrant story, there are a lot of immigrants in Leadville now. Um, The number of free and reduced lunches in the schools is very high. There are many, many, many people with English as a second language. So again, it goes back to this memorial. If we tell it properly, it has a, a kind of universal appeal for the people who live there. I should also say, that this land originally belonged to the people of the Ute Nation. And they were moved from that land to build the cemetery, not by the Irish, but by whoever mm. was building the cemetery. So we do honor the Ute Nation when we have events there. And we've actually invited one of their elders to come for the two events we have had up there so that we are being respectful of the people who are moved from that land to make room for people who are moved from their land because of the work situation that Terry pointed out.
0: So Lisa, there's a ribbon cutting ceremony happening at Evergreen Cemetery in September. Tell us more about what's going to happen at that event.
1: That event will be the final piece where we have the acrylic walls of names. So again, going back to, the, to our commitment to name the unnamed, there will be panels, acrylic panels that have the names of the 1,100 people we do know who are buried there their names Mm. and their birth dates and their death dates. And then we will have educational kiosks that will allow people to scan a QR code and go to our website and learn more about the project. And finally, it's a way to say thank you, thank you, thank you to the so many people who have contributed to make this project work. Terry's bringing a contingent of folks from Mm -hmm. Ireland, and we're hoping to have dignitaries. I should say that our network, Irish Network Colorado, falls under the auspices of the San Francisco Consulate, the Irish Consulate, so uh, they've been very, very supportive of us also, and they will be here, and then hopefully local dignitaries who we're inviting will also attend.
0: The memorial obviously is a work in progress and there will be the September event. So if someone wants to see the memorial, how do they do that?
1: Well, you can go to our website and you'll see renderings and you'll see recent pictures um, now that Liam is in place. The big event is actually on September 16th. We have our events up there in September on that weekend because it's halfway to St. Patrick's Day. So it fits very nicely with St. Patrick's Day now. And the big event will actually be the ribbon cutting itself with the ceremony uh, and the commitment will be on um, Saturday, September 16th. And it's open to the public. Lisa, Terry, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for this opportunity. We really appreciate it.
6: And Chandra, remember the last time that this happened, the French put a statue on, this, on the Hudson River. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you so much.
6: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Lisa Switzer is the president of the Irish Network Colorado and sculptor Terry Brennan is a Dublin native who joined us from a mountain village in Ireland. They spoke with us about the Irish Miners Memorial Project at the historic Evergreen Cemetery in the mountain town of Leadville, which recognizes the more than 1,000 Irish immigrant miners who are buried there in unmarked graves. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC.
7: For the first time in many years, Denver voters will choose a new mayor. That's just one of the many things on Denver's ballot. Everything a Denverite needs to know before ballots are due April 4th, all in the 2023 election guide at denverite.com.
0: Ballots for the Denver election hit the mail earlier this week. Among the key races voters will decide on is mayor, a role that will have impact well beyond city limits. Seven of the mayoral candidates took part in a forum hosted by our sister publication, Denverite. It was produced with the help of nonprofits focused on underserved communities. CPR's Nathan Heffel and May Ortega moderated. Candidates had a fixed amount of time to answer and two chances to rebut. Here's an excerpt.
8: Starting with Lisa Calderon, where do you see environmental racism playing out in the city and what will you do about it? Uh, so I uh,
9: lived in the Westridge Projects. Um, and have been a north sider, east sider, west sider, lived in Montbello. And those places have been historically redlined, including with environmental racism in terms of our air, our water, all of that. Um, As a co-chair of the Latino Forum, I also um, led us in joining a lawsuit with the neighbors at GES Uh, because of our air continuing to be poisoned. I mean, the fact that we have Suncor spewing this uh, poison into our communities, and they barely get a slap on the wrist, so I would be a mayor to stand up to big environmental polluters, uh, but also the fact that, you know, we have to restore the South Platte, and I walk it, I walk it regularly. It is not drinkable, fishable, swimmable, um, and that is, we know our rivers are our lifeblood of all of our communities, so we need to do a better job of taking care of them.
8: Thank you. Kwame Spearman?
10: This is probably the only time I'm going to say this tonight. I agree with everything Lisa just said. And so here's what we're going to do on top of that. We're going to have a neighborhood approach for this. The reality of the situation is that we have just looked to the other side and if we have a neighborhood focus we can actually have goals in place for it. Secondly we've got to use the EPA here to our advantage. This is something that we should be doing at the state level. So once again I will respectfully ask my friends what have you been doing on this issue for the past decade where it's been terrorizing GES moving forward. The last thing that I will say on this is this is an area where economic development is absolutely key. We should be leading on the green economy. The best thing that we can do to Suncor is we can put them out of business. And Denver has the possibility to lead with green. That's everything from a micro-mobility throughout our best neighborhoods to having city buildings that are not using the type of natural gas and oil that they are today. We should lead on this. We should do it through our neighborhoods, and we should acknowledge that this is a remnant of racism. Thank you.
8: Chris Hansen.
5: All right, thanks so much, Kwame. Thank you for that setup question. Uh, What have we been doing? Colorado's been leading. I've been leading in the legislature. While you were out of town, we passed historic (laughs) legislation. I passed the bill to end coal-fired power in the state of Colorado. So it's not just neighborhoods. We gotta close the coal plants to get rid of pollution. I led the effort in 2017 to run the first just transition bill. We have environmental justice office because of the work that I've done at the State Capitol, both dollars and a real approach that Colorado is leading around the nation. And finally, the giant opportunity for Denver and for the next mayor is to rapidly accelerate electrification. The IRA and the federal legislation, the state legislation I helped put in place, it's billions of dollars. It's tens of thousands of green jobs. It's a massive opportunity a once in a lifetime opportunity for Denver if we have the right leadership in City Hall. And that is exactly the work I wanna do on your behalf. So Chris, you know how much I love you. And I think that if you'd spent
10: more time in GES and you'd spoken to the people on the ground, you'd know that they are not satisfied with the work that you've done. And quite frankly, this is a change election because we are not going to accept politicians who come here and just list off all of the things that they've done when you go home and you don't see the effect of that. That's not how it works if you're a small business owner. When that happens, your business goes out of business. So respectfully, maybe go into the neighborhood, talk to the
5: people and come back before you tell us about all the things you've done for them. Thank you. So my answer involved the progress we've made and a clear vision of how we can continue to make more incredible progress in this city and in this state. Closing the coal plants in this state was the single best thing we could do to improve our air pollution around the entire state. I did that, I led on that. Colorado is now a leader when it comes to climate and energy policy in this country, and I played a huge role in that. That is not promises, that is delivery.
10: Okay, moving on, thank you.
8: Mike Johnston.
11: Uh, Thank you. Zoom out for a minute. When th- people think about the the hope for Denver, many people think of it as a place that is closely connected to the outdoors. A beautiful environment. You can walk. You can hike. The reality of the Denver we'll be in now is that there are a lot of people in this room who are going to have to worry if they can take their kid outside in the summertime or their mom outside in the summertime because the air may be so dangerous that it's going to be unhealthy for them. And we know those risks are going to be the most profound in our communities of color that are closest to those polluters. I think Lisa was totally right uh, about Suncor. Um, and so I do think what we have to do is be far more aggressive about, one, what are our, our communities' access to open spaces and to parks and to public opportunities in each of those communities? And the second is, how do we take very aggressive stances to clean up that air, knowing that'll have the most important impact on the folks that are most at risk. That means, yes, electrifying all of our buildings. It means, yes, electrifying vehicles and electrifying the city vehicle fleet so you can get more and more uh, non-emitting vehicles on the street so we can start to cut back, get that air to be healthy enough again so people can still go outside and play anytime they want and not worry about their health. Thank
8: you. Thank you. Leslie Heron?
12: So first, I'm glad that we're acknowledging that environmental racism is real, and then we have to go back to the remedies for how we're gonna overcome that. I think number one, we have to acknowledge that we do need to do more to regulate Suncor. I worked uh, in the legislature to make sure that we had more regulation around Suncor, and we faced tremendous opposition, but it was the community that continued to fight and say that they will hold us accountable to make sure that we did that work. As someone who has asthma and knows that I can't go out in the summer on, on bad, Um, pollution days, right, because it's akin to me smoking one to two packs of cigarettes a day if I go outside, I know the impacts of environmental racism firsthand. But it's also the remedies, right, the lack of access to healthcare, the lack of access to someone even believing my mother that I had asthma until I was in the fifth grade, creating long-term damage on my system. Right, The fact that no one wanted to talk about the disproportionate impacts on, of COVID in communities of color until black women raised the flag and said it was killing our people first. Thank We've got to make sure that our health outcomes also are, and West our State. remedies align with the communities that are disproportionately impacted. Thank you. Thank you.
13: Debbie Ortega. So I want to talk a little bit about <clears throat> some of the things I have done and, and would continue to do. So the ASARCO cleanup of the GES neighborhoods. I led working with the communities to, essentially, it ended up shutting down that business. It was the largest property damage settlement in the country at that time. And people had their soils cleaned up on the I-70 project. Once my colleagues made a decision, they were gonna support the mayor to move forward with the I-70 project. I worked to make sure that we submitted 40 pages of comments to mitigate the impact of the I-70 project on those neighborhoods. There were lots of things that were done to remedy part of that. Yes, none of us wanted the I-70 project in the community, but I think focusing on the impact was something that I felt an obligation to do. Last thing, I think working on, as we continue to electrify, um, you know, move towards electrification, we have to look at what the costs mean to the cost of living for people in Denver.
6: Thank you.
14: Kelly Bruff, Thanks. Um, When you look around our city, you can see how we've made investments in our history that were directly and negatively impacted communities, whether it was the I-70 placement, the industrialization uh, in the GES community, and particularly the Suncor plant, or even along the Platte River. Uh, All of those pieces are pieces we have to address going forward. And as I said earlier, I commit that 50% at least of the money we have to put toward climate and addressing our future will go to communities where the inequities occurred in our history. Um, But I couldn't pick a community who I think has been more negatively impacted in our city than GES. So that's who I'd put at the front of the list.
0: An excerpt from the People's Forum a Denver Mayoral Candidates Forum produced by our news partner, Denverite, and moderated by CPR's Nathan Heffel and May Ortega. Watch the entire debate at cpr.org slash mayor and read about all the candidates and issues in Denverite's voter guide at denverite.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
8: When a 73-year-old woman was appointed health advisor on Colorado's post-war planning committee in 1944, nobody thought the Central City native would rock the political boat. But this was medical and scientific pioneer, Dr. Florence Rena Sabin, the first woman to graduate from Johns Hopkins Medical School, the first to become full medical professor there, and the first woman elected to the National Academy of Sciences. Dr. Sabin could have sat quietly on that committee. Instead, she traveled across Colorado and opened many eyes to the sad state of the state's public health. With energy, brilliance, and a steely spirit, she changed the face of public health and medicine in Colorado and ultimately improved and extended lives across the state. And today, Florence Rena Sabin's statue is one of Colorado's two contributions to the National Statuary Hall in the nation's capital. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Coble & Company.
14: Oh, Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from glen to glen and down the mountain side.
0: On St. Patrick's Day, we can be sure the pipes, the pipes will be calling. Danny Boy is a quintessentially Irish song, yet historian, Andrew Gilliford says the melody is connected as much to Ure, Colorado, as to the Emerald Isle. He spoke with Ryan Warner last March.
7: This story involves a woman who lived in a ramshackle mine and a name scratched in a doorway. Uh, First off, how did you get started on this Danny Boy historical journey?
4: I can't really remember where it started in terms of the connection, but what I had to do as a historian was prove that Edward Weatherly and then his wife had actually been at this mine in Uray and then tracked down the story all the way back to London. And so trying to find the copyright for the song Danny Boy. And one of the interesting things that developed was that it was written by an Englishman, even though it is certainly considered to be a quintessential Irish tune.
7: All sorts of discoveries on this trek. So we're talking about Margaret Weatherly, correct?
4: Yes, Margaret Weatherly was the Irish wife of Edward Weatherly. And Edward Weatherly came to Uray and got into mining, was very interested in silver, railed against the gold standard, wrote for the Uray Times, and tried to develop this mine, Neosho. What I was interested in was the actual history connecting the song Danny Boy to the Weatherly family.
7: Yeah, so Margaret Weatherly lives in this remote mountain town with her husband, far removed from any cultural centers. I'll note she's not a musician, uh, or at least not classically trained. How was she integral to a musical mashup that leads to one of the most recognizable songs in modern
4: times? Well, Edward Weatherly's brother stays in London, becomes a barrister, an attorney, does well, uh, starts writing poetry, starts writing other things, and then is struck by this horrible double tragedy in which he loses his father and his son within about three months. So he writes this poem and sends the poem to his brother, who shares it with his wife. And somewhere along the line, someone says, well, can you put this to music? And here's where the wife comes in she felt that there was a tune that would work. And the tune that she matched to the words was actually hundreds of years old and is an Irish folk tune that was probably played by blind harp players uh, around the streets of Dublin. And because Margaret's father had been an itinerant railroad worker and many of the railroad workers in America were Irish, he had taught her songs and tunes. And so she matched... This tune to those words, and thus Danny Boy was born, copywritten in 1913.
7: And this tune, which makes Danny Boy Irish, by the way, is Derry Air.
4: Yes, yes. And apparently, uh, other scholars have said that folks had been trying for years to come up with words to match that, and that Margaret did it.
7: Okay, more about how the tune of Derriere is lended to Danny Boy. But the first question you raised was really trying to find solid evidence that the Weatherlies uh, had been, and Margaret in particular, uh, had been in the area and uh, at this mine. And, and that's where this name scratched in a doorway comes in,
4: right? Absolutely. So... I went up to the mine. It's kind of an interesting route to get to it. I went with the archaeologist, and her house had been destroyed, so we knew that you know we wouldn't find anything of the Weatherleys, no private possessions of any sort. But we were at the bunkhouse and looking around, and I happened to uh, look in the doorway, and here she had penciled her name and the date in 1924, and so that was the historical link that linked the family to the mind, and then basically the mind to the story, and what happens is the brother never acknowledges the role of his sister-in-law, never <gasps> says that she had provided the music, but sort of, I guess, out of uh, some sense of guilt, continues to help Edward Weatherly by funding the mine, by providing him British pounds, which he spends on dynamite and workers for a silver mine that is never gonna pay off. So there's a double tragedy. There's the tragedy of Danny Boy in the song, yes. which is really about losing a father and a son. And then the tragedy of investing in a mine high up on a ridge in Colorado, that's never gonna pay off.
7: Well, and then the third tragedy, which you've hinted at there, which is that Margaret Weatherly really never gets credit for putting music to Danny Boy, or the right music.:
4: Correct. There's a, a great-grandson now who's written a book about Danny Boy who's trying to sort of correct that and give Margaret the credit she deserves.:
7: Danny Boy became an instant hit after it was published in 1913. It became the quintessential dirge for soldiers who died in World Wars I and two. Were you able to determine, like, if Margaret ever sang? her song around yure or if she ever heard it performed and, and said that's my song
4: i'm not sure she ever heard it performed but i'm sure that it was all of the colorado mining camps had a strong saloon culture and the irish were right there with the germans and the northern italians so i'm sure it was played in Uray. Uh, i'm not sure what saloon but i think this is really important yure history that this is a world famous song And the story of that mine and that this couple and the couple's marriage ends in tragedy when the husband dies in the Great Depression. Margaret loses her sanity and is attended to by the citizens of URE, but eventually goes to the state insane hospital in Pueblo and dies there. And then the books, the archives from the family is at the University of Colorado Boulder, and I was never able to get to those boxes. I'm not sure what's in there. I'm sure a lot of writings from mure and then the husband's obituary that ran in the Durango Herald. So there's plenty of tragedy all around.
7: Sounds like a dare for a graduate student in history to me, Andrew.
4: <laughs> yes.
7: Yeah. Good idea. You know, to just highlight how exceptional Margaret Weatherly is over the years, others had tried to put lyrics to Air. They were like, not great. Failed. Would God I were the tender apple blossom. Oh, shrive me, Father, haste, haste, and shrive me. Shrive, uh, apparently meaning absolve me, give me penance. Uh, evidently, no one thought of Fred Weatherly's The Pipes Are Calling, except for Margaret up in her Lonely Miner's Cabin. Uh, this song has been covered by everyone from Roy Orbison to Elvis Presley to the Muppets. Oh, Danny
14: boy. Oh, Danny boy. Oh, Danny boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, Danny.
7: Is there a version that you like, Andrew?
4: I, there's many versions of the song, but there's a story I'd like to add. Yeah. And that is, and that is I did have an Irish uncle uh, who was my Uncle Sam. We all have the Uncle Sam, but I really had an Uncle Sam. <laughs> and uh, he was in the military. When he passed away, those of us who were pallbearers were asked to come and uh, make sure the funeral was well attended. But then we had to have a wake. He was Irish. And so he had a specific cassette full of music that we were supposed to play, including, of course, Danny Boy, and then two bottles of whiskey. Uh, One was Scotch whiskey, and the other was Irish whiskey. And the rules of the wake were very specific. Those men of us who had been pallbearers had to put our arms around each other, stand up in my Uncle Sam's living room, and not sit down until we had finished both bottles of whiskey. And by that time, We'd heard Danny Boy several times. We were crying. It was a memorable, memorable wake.
7: And a testament to just how integral this song has become, a song I didn't know until now, Andrew Gulliford, that has Colorado connections. Thank you so
4: much. Thank you.
0: Fascinating. Andrew Gulliford teaches history at Fort Lewis College in Durango. He spoke with Ryan Warner last St. Patrick's Day about the Western Colorado connection to Danny Boy, performed here once again by Colorado's Face Vocal Band.
14: Oh, Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling from glen to glen and down. Summer's gone and all the roses falling. It's you, It's you must go and I must bide. But come
0: And that's Colorado Matters for today with thanks to my colleagues who make me feel that I have the luck of the Irish.
10: Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton, Pete. Pete Kramer,
9: Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher,
10: Matt Hers. Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño,
0: Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.